If you will, make your way to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13 and verse 22. We're going to consider the remainder of this chapter through verse 35 in a message entitled, The Narrow Door of Salvation. A strait in the ocean is a narrow body of water that connects two larger bodies of water. Historically, straits have had great strategic importance because whoever controls a strait is likely to control the sea, the shipping routes, and perhaps even an entire region. The narrow passages can sometimes make those straits difficult to navigate. The Strait of Magellan is a very thin waterway between the southern tip of South America and the group of islands known as Tierra del Fuego. The strait links the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. And it's said that the stormy waters south of the Tierra del Fuego, close to Antarctica, make the Strait of Magellan uh, to the north more attractive to mariners. The land masses protect the strait from the harsh Antarctic weather, but the Strait of Magellan is still difficult to navigate. It's narrow. The islands of Tierra del Fuego can cause some confusion in stormy weather when the temperatures reach freezing, and strong winds and waves make visibility and steering rather complex. In our passage of Scripture today, Jesus spoke of a narrow passage. It turns out to be the most important passage of all. He speaks here of the narrow door of salvation. And we'll begin reading in Luke's gospel, chapter 13, verse 22. And this is what the word of God says. He, Jesus, went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. Lord, someone asked him, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer you, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south, to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. Note this, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Now verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came and told him, go, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go tell that fox, look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will complete my work Yet it is necessary that I travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. Now verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her? 
How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is abandoned to you. I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke began this section by mentioning again that Jesus is on his way toward Jerusalem. This is a central theme because Jesus has his eyes fixed on the purpose for which God the Father sent him to accomplish. And his journey toward Jerusalem could not be stopped. It's said here that he went from one town and village after another, and he was teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. Now, he's not actually going to arrive in Jerusalem until we get to chapter 19. But he continues his teaching on the characteristics of the kingdom of God, along with who is and who is not a part of the kingdom. And this kingdom was inaugurated in Jesus, so in a sense it was present, but it was even still yet to come. Those who enter the kingdom are those who respond in faith to both the Messiah and his message. So in the midst of Jesus' teaching, an unnamed person in the crowd poses a question to Jesus. And the question is, in verse 23, are only a few people going to be saved? This was likely a question posed from an attitude of pride, religious pride. The general understanding among the Jews was that all Jews, except the very worst, would be saved. The Mishnah, which means literally study by repetition, which comes from a root word meaning to study and review, was the first major written collection of the Jewish oral traditions related to the law of Moses. And the Mishnah stated in part, all Israelites have a share in the world to come. For it is written, thy people also shall be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. When the question came to Jesus, most of the people would have expected Jesus to affirm that almost all of the Jews would make it into the eternal kingdom of God. They also thought that the Gentiles would be excluded from the kingdom, except maybe for a few proselytes like Rahab and Ruth. The question was intended to solidify their religious superiority. And Jesus uses a technique here that he often used in his teaching that when a question was answered, he would either, uh, or asked, he would either answer that with a question or he would state something altogether different. Here, he doesn't answer the question directly, but instead he responds to it with a command. Verse 24, make every effort to enter the narrow door. Now, we've got to ask ourselves, is Jesus teaching salvation by works in this verse? Or, to state it another way, if salvation is by grace, then why would anyone need to make every effort or to strive to obtain it? It's clear in the overall teaching of Jesus 
that he taught the central importance of faith and our response to encountering the gospel as the only means of salvation. At no point did Jesus teach that salvation could be gained by works. Let me illustrate this from John chapter 6. You remember the unbelieving Jews were seeking more miraculous signs like the feeding of the 5,000 that had just occurred. Jesus said to them, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. They then asked, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus in turn issued a very simple call to faith and he said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. He uses the symbol of the narrow door to represent salvation. I.H. Marshall, the commentator, noted that the imagery is akin to that of a camel passing through the needle's eye, and he suggests the difficulty of facing up to the demands of Jesus. The road is narrow, as Jesus explained when he preached in Matthew chapter 7, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus followed his statement in Luke chapter 13 and verse 24 with teaching that shows the need, first of all, to enter through the right gate, which is faith in Jesus and not faith in religion, and the need to do so with urgency while noting the consequences of waiting too long and the consequences of trying to get through the gate in any other way than through the door that Jesus presents. We learn first from the teaching of Jesus about the narrow door that salvation has a deadline. Salvation has a deadline. I believe this is a word of urgency. Look in verse 25. Many will try to enter and won't be able. Many, not some, including the majority of his hearers who would not make it. The Jews had the law, the prophets, the temple. They assumed that their privilege made them a lock for the kingdom of God. And the apostle Paul challenged this way of thinking as well in Romans chapter 2. Listen to what he says in verse 17 and following. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior being instructed from the law, And if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? So Paul says, listen, you've got all these privileges and you're claiming to teach people the right way. So if, in fact, you were following after the right way, you would be teaching yourself as well. And the heart of this point is that there is a time limit on the offer of salvation. How do we know that? Well, verse 25 says, once the homeowner gets up and he shuts the door, then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for 
us. So Jesus uses this image of someone coming to the door of a home. The homeowner, when they get there, has already gotten up and closed the door. Nobody else is gaining entrance, and it's already too late. I say to you today, the door of salvation is open to you. The reason I know that it is open to you is because you are alive. The door of salvation will not always be open to you. Eventually, the door of salvation will be closed. And it will be closed either by your individual death and your departure from this life to the next, or the door will be closed when Jesus returns. We ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to be saved, spiritually speaking? Well, we see physical examples of rescue almost on a daily basis with the worldwide access that we have to news and seeing things happen globally. I think sometimes these dramatic things almost become run of the mill and uh, we become numb to the dramatic things that happen when people are physically rescued. Uh, There was one that played out just this past week. A fire erupted on a ship that was about 130 miles off of the Canadian coastline. It was a 143-foot fishing vessel uh, named the Atlantic Destiny. Crews from the U.S. Coast Guard and the Canadian Coast Guard and the Royal Canadian Air Force responded. And what they encountered were waves that were up to 33 feet in height. Wind that was over 50 miles an hour. And yet in the midst of all of that chaos... They rescued all 31 crew members, and they safely transported them via helicopters and naval vessels to shore where they were reunited with their families. See, when Jesus saves us spiritually, it's a pretty dramatic event. We need to understand what happens when we are saved. The Bible teaches us that God is holy and our sin separates us from God. And apart from God, before we've entered through that narrow door, we are helpless and hopeless. But God, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, has provided the way of rescue from the consequences of our sin. And God offers us the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. So to be saved means that you're forgiven and your sins no longer count against you because of what Jesus has done. When you're saved, it means that you are right with God and you are in right standing with him. The God who created you and gave you physical life and the God who gifts you spiritual life. When you're saved, it means that you are assured of living with God forever in heaven. Apart from sin and pain and suffering and separation. And I think a lot of people put off salvation. And you wonder, why do people put off salvation? Well, there are a lot of reasons why they do. Uh, Many people put off being saved because they think they don't know enough, they make it too hard, or they think that they're already good enough and therefore don't need to be saved, or that they think that there's no way they could ever be good enough to be saved, and then some people just love their sin. They don't want to change. Their hearts are hardened, and they put it off thinking that there'll still be another opportunity. And then others think that everybody's going to rest in peace and there's not even a need 
to be concerned. Don't wait until the door is shut on your life or Jesus returns. Today is the day of salvation. Salvation has a deadline, and it's a word for us of urgency. Second, we learn from the teaching of Jesus about the narrow door that rejecting salvation has consequences. We now find a word of warning. The response when they came too late, after the door was already closed, uh, is found in verse 27. I tell you, I don't know where, uh, know you or where you're from. Those who are shut out seem startled, surprised, and they called out to the Lord, open up to us. And he said, I don't know you, I don't know where you're from. And then they said in reply, but we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. They were acquainted with Jesus, but they didn't know him. Now, of course, Jesus knew them in a sense. He knew who they were. He knew about their lives. But when he says he doesn't know them, he's making the point that he didn't know them in the sense of a relationship. He did not have a vital connection of faith with them. So he says, verse 27, get away from me, all you evildoers. Understand, rejecting salvation has consequences, which Jesus outlines in verse 28 through verse 30. He says specifically, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The main consequence of rejecting salvation is eternity in hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth emphasize the horror of it all, that it is in fact a place of suffering. And while hell is an unpopular subject in modern times, Jesus spoke more of it than anyone else in the Bible. Here is the Savior of love, the one who freely distributes grace and mercy, the one who offers up the only way to salvation, and yet he also speaks more of hell than anybody else in the Bible. Why is that? Because there's no reason for anyone to have to go there. He wants people to understand the consequences so that they can act in urgency and receive the gift And the point is, as Jesus speaks of hell in great detail, even more than he did of heaven, is that he tells us what it's going to be like, a place of eternal torment, unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die, a place of outer darkness, and a place from which there is no return. All who do not belong to Jesus will suffer this terrible fate. Hell will be a place of anguish, remorse, pain, misery. Every person in hell will come to the reality of what it means to be lost. They'll come to the reality of what it means to be in a place where there are no more second chances. They'll come to the reality of the anguish of being separated from God, an anguish that will never go away because hell will be eternal and unrelenting. And Jesus noted that when they found themselves shut out of the kingdom, they would be especially stunned when they saw Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets. The people that they thought they too were a part of, but yet who had believed in faith, 
and followed after the promise. J.I. Packer wrote of the goodness and the severity of God in his book, Knowing God. He said this, he said, the character of God is the guarantee that all wrongs will be righted someday. When the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed, arrives, retribution will be exact and no problems of cosmic unfairness will remain to haunt us. God is the judge, so justice will be done. I'm here to tell you today that God is indisputably good. And in his grace and mercy, he has made the way for you to enter through that narrow door with urgency, avoiding the consequences of eternal pain and suffering. And it's a word of warning that we would all do well to heed. And then third, we learn from the teaching of Jesus about the narrow door that knowing Jesus is the key to salvation. Now we come uh, to a highlight on a way to follow. This is the path that Jesus calls us to. Now he says, I don't know you, verse 25, then again in verse 27. What's the inverse of I don't know you? That he does know you and that you know him. That's the flip side. And to know Jesus is to essentially have a relationship with him by faith. You remember it was Jesus who defined eternal life in John chapter 17 and verse 3, where he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So from the lips of Jesus, he defines for us what eternal life is. And he says, the, the, the essence of eternal life is knowing God. The essence is not knowing about God. The essence is not respecting God. It is knowing him and knowing his son, Jesus Christ. And someday there will be many people together with God in his kingdom from all over the world. The gospel was for the Jew first and then also for the Gentiles. Notice verse 29. People will come from the east and the west and north and the south. And what are they coming for? They're coming to share in the banquet in the kingdom of God. They are coming to gather around the table of God. And this banquet referenced was first prophesied in Isaiah, and then it's found in its culmination in the book of Revelation. And the idea of the banquet teaches us some important things about the kingdom. First of all, the invitation list is broad. And while those who accept the invitation will be narrow, those who accept the invitation will include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. They will gather from east and west, north and south, and from all points in between to gather at the great feast of God. And after referencing hell, what Jesus is doing here is giving us some insight into heaven. Heaven, a, a real place, a destination. Heaven, a place of rest and provision where we will share in the banquet. Heaven, a place of good company with other people who have also trusted in the Lord. Heaven, a place that will be populated by people who have come from all over the earth. And he tells us something about the kingdom ethic here in verse 30 in that some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Let me translate that for you. 
Your position in this life does not give you any advantage in gaining salvation. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. The only thing that matters is whether or not you are covered in the blood of Jesus, whether or not you stand in his righteousness. And what that also tells us is it does not matter what you have done. You are not too far from the grace of God to be saved. Jesus stands ready to receive you by faith to enter through that narrow door and to enter into the kingdom of God. Knowing Jesus is the way to follow. It's the key to salvation. Now there's a bit of an interlude in verse 31 through verse 33. We often think of the Pharisees and we think the Pharisees, they were the religious people, they were uh, rulers, they, they were constantly opposing Jesus and that's in part true. But what we find here is that not all of the Pharisees opposed Jesus. In fact, some of them wanted to protect him. They wanted to steer him away from the evil of Herod. The Herod who is referenced here is Herod Antipas. He was the tetrarch of Galilee who ruled throughout the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus calls Herod a fox. Now let me just tell you, this is not a term of endearment. This is a term of outright contempt. And to the Jew, the fox was a symbol of three things. First, it was regarded as the slyest of all animals. Second, it was regarded as the most destructive of animals. And third, it was a symbol of a worthless and insignificant man. Jesus is making the point here that he was afraid of no man. Fear of man did not drive Jesus. Instead, he was locked in on the purpose for which he had come from heaven to earth to accomplish, and that was to seek and to save the lost. And there was no person or no purpose that would thwart the mission that he came on. And he was going to continue his work, unafraid of Herod, until he was finished. And when he was finished, it would be symbolized by the reference that we find here to the third day, which is none other than his resurrection, his victory over death, hell, and the grave. And then finally, Jesus laments over Jerusalem, the city that would reject him. Jesus knew their sins, and yet he loved them. He cherished the people, and he pleaded with them to turn from destruction. And I've got good news for you today. Jesus knows your sins, and he loves you. He cherishes you, having been created in the image of God. And his word issues the plea to flee from destruction, to enter through the narrow door. And the problem was not the willingness of Jesus to rescue these people and to protect them. The problem was that their hearts were hard and they were not willing. And today, if you don't enter through that narrow door, the problem will not be the willingness of Jesus to receive you through it and then to protect you. The problem will be that you are not willing because God is inviting you. And it's a real invitation. And he closes with these words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The blessing comes 
directly from Psalm 118 and verse 26. It was spoken by incoming pilgrims on feast days, and the people spoke similar words when they escorted Jesus from the Mount of Olives to the temple courts and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And I think this reference also points to a time in the future when we will see Jesus in the kingdom still to come upon his second coming, that time when every eye will see him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess And the confession will be, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So I ask you this in closing. Have you entered through the narrow door of salvation into the kingdom of God? If you have, you're blessed and you've also been given a responsibility. You're blessed because you've been saved. You've been given a responsibility because God wants you to share it with others. So as we emphasize who's your one and praying and sharing our testimony and sharing the gospel with others, we're doing so from a heart that is thankful that God has brought us into his kingdom. And as we think about giving sacrificially to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American missions, we're reminded that there are millions of people who have not yet entered through that narrow door. And no, all of them will not enter through. In fact, few will, comparatively speaking, but they'll come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they'll gather at the great banquet of God and will be blessed And we'll give God the glory for all of eternity. And if you haven't entered through that narrow door of salvation, today is the day. There's urgency. There's a warning. And there's only one way, and his name is Jesus. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray.